Hey, welcome to episode number 90 of More Than Bread. My name is Dan, and I'm your host for this journey through Scripture, the Bible, the Word of God. So far, we've done a a 40-plus episode journey through the whole New Testament, and then about 25 episodes in a Gospel of John deep dive. In episode 67, we started in on the Gospel of Mark. If this is your first time, here's what I do. I read some scripture, in this case from the Gospel of Mark. Sometimes as I'm reading, I'll make some comments in the moment. I try to make sure that you know when it's my words or Bible words. And, and then after reading the scripture, I'll offer some, some devotional thoughts, some, some interpretation, maybe some application points. And, and then I'll read the scripture again and finish up with a, a prayer. Some of you might be thinking, well, I can read the scripture. Why don't you just offer your thoughts and let me read it? And you can definitely do that. But you know what? There's just something about hearing it. It's a little bit it's a little bit different. I don't know. We just digest things a little bit differently when it enters our minds, our souls through our ears rather than our eyes. And in Jesus' day, it was an oral culture. That's how they most often absorb scripture. That's how they learned. It was it was speaking, it was oral by by hearing. So this episode is going to be a little bit different from the last 15 or so, mostly because I'm going to read more scripture than typical. We're going to cover the whole chapter of Mark in this session, Mark chapter 8, the whole chapter of Mark chapter 8, and then and then my, my thoughts will focus on just the last few verses. So listen as I read Mark 8 from the New Living Translation. And as I read, take note if there's anything, a thought, a story, an idea that stirs your heart up a bit. Because that just might be the Spirit of God putting a a bookmark in in your heart for this passage. Mark 8. About this time, another large crowd had gathered and the people ran out of food again. Jesus called his disciples and told them, I feel sorry for these people. They've been here with me for three days. They have nothing left to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will faint along the way. For some of them have come a long distance. His disciples replied, how are we supposed to find enough food to feed them out here in the wilderness? And Jesus asked, how much bread do you have? Seven loaves, they replied. So Jesus told all the people to sit down on the ground. And then he took the seven loaves, thanked God for them, and broke them into pieces. He gave them the pieces to his disciples who distributed the bread to the crowd. A few small fish were found too. So Jesus also blessed these and told the disciples to distribute them. They all ate as much as they wanted. And afterwards, the disciples picked up seven large baskets of leftover food. There were about 4,000 men in the crowd that day, and Jesus sent them home after they had eaten. Immediately after this, he got into a boat with his disciples and crossed over to the region of Dalmanutha. Dalmanutha. Verse 11, when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had arrived, they came and started to argue with him. Testing him, now this kind of testing here is not a refining testing, it's a quizzing testing. Testing him, they demanded that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority. When he heard this, he sighed deeply in his spirit. He said, why do these people keep demanding a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, I will not give this generation any such sign. So he got back into the boat and left them and he crossed to the other side. But the disciples had forgotten to bring any food. They had only one loaf of bread with them in the boat. As they were crossing the lake, Jesus warned them, Watch out, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. And at this they began to argue with each other because they hadn't brought any bread. 
Now, Jesus knew what they were saying, so he said, Why are you arguing about having no bread? Don't you know or understand even yet? Are your hearts too hard to take it in? You have eyes, can't you see? You have ears, can't you hear? Don't you remember anything at all? When I fed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread, how many baskets of leftovers did you pick up afterwards? Twelve, they said. And when I fed the 4,000 with seven loaves, how many large baskets of leftovers did you pick up? Seven, they said. Don't you understand yet? He asked them. Now, my words, I'm not exactly entirely sure what he wanted them to understand, but here's what I think. I think he wanted them to understand that we live by more than bread alone and that Jesus is able to provide everything that we need. Verse 22, when they arrived at Bethsaida, some people brought a blind man to Jesus and they begged him to touch the man and heal him. Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And then spitting on the man's eyes, in my words, you remember in, in the last episode that there was a, a spitting there too with the man who was deaf and his tongue. And I mean, Jesus is very natural and organic and hands-on in a sense. Spitting on the man's eyes, he laid his hands on him and asked, can you see anything now? The man looked around. Yes, he said, I see people, but I can't see them very clearly. They look like trees walking around. Then Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes again, and his eyes were opened. His sight was completely restored. He could see everything clearly. Jesus sent him away saying, don't go back into the village on your way home. Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. And as they were walking along, he asked them, who do people say that I am? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say you're one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, he asked his disciples, his followers, who do you say I am? Peter replied, you are the Messiah. The word Messiah is the same as the word that we get the Christ. You're the king, you're the king of the kingdom of God. You're the one we've been waiting for, the anointed one. Verse 30, but Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but three days later, he would rise from the dead. And as he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples, and then he reprimanded Peter. Get away from me, Satan, he said. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Let me just pause there for a moment to say, you know, I, I think it is so important. I was talking about this with someone the other day. I think it is so important for us to, to do everything we can, especially in times of uncertainty, to see life from God's perspective. That's in part what the value of the word is, the scripture is, is that we have this opportunity to at least begin to see things from God's perspective. Gaining God's view on life is so critical. Verse 34, then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you'll save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? My words, you've heard that one before, right? You've heard that sense of it. It, it does no good to gain the whole world, to gain stuff and in the process lose our soul. 
Is anything, verse 37, worth more than your soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now, there's so many places where we could dive in, probably more than a few places where the Spirit of God stirred up your heart a bit, said to you and all the different yous who are listening right now, don't miss that. Listen in on that. That's important for you. But I just want to focus on the last part. So here's the context of Mark 8. Jesus feeds another crowd. Jesus heals a blind man. Jesus asks his disciples who others and then who they think he really is. And and then Jesus starts talking about suffering and dying. Peter says, no, that's not who you are. That's not what's ahead for us. And Jesus says, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, the good news, you'll save it. See, when Jesus is feeding the crowds and healing the blind, it's pretty easy to start thinking comfort, control, power, top of the world, that's where we're headed. So finally, Jesus takes a moment to just make sure that his disciples know who he really is and where he's headed so that they'll know who they are and where they're headed. Because in the end, and I guess in the beginning, and everything in between, it's all about following Jesus. So just ask yourself right now, ask yourself this question, what would it look like if my life looked like his life? I mean, is that what being a follower is all about? What would happen if Jesus moved into your neighborhood, apartment building, or dorm, or or started working in your workplace? What, What if Jesus moved into your house? What would change? Who would he hang out with? Would there be a buzz about the new guy? And what would be behind the buzz? Let me make it even more personal. What would happen if Jesus took over your life? Ask yourself, what if my life looked like his life? I keep going back to these words that Paul wrote to his friends in in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He said, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. See, there's a way of so identifying with Christ that we're crucified with Christ. We die with Christ, and when we die with Christ, what does Paul say? I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I mean, what does that look like? Uh, Narrow it down to a day. What if for one day Jesus were to become you? For 24 hours, Jesus wakes up in your bed, walks in your shoes, answers your email, lives by your schedule, responds to your Facebook or Instagram. Your, Your family becomes his family. Your pain becomes his pain. Nothing about your life changes. Every circumstance remains. But for 24 hours, Jesus lives your life. Would people notice a difference? Would it be a huge difference? Would a Jesus heart soften your temper, give you more patience? Would you see sunsets differently? Would you drive differently? I just don't understand it sometimes why there's so many idiots on the road when I drive. (laughs) I mean, stop and think about your next day, your tomorrow. What What about tomorrow? If Jesus controls the calendar, what changes? Would you know more of your neighbors? Would they be glad they knew you? What what music would you listen to? What Netflix shows would, would he binge? I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. What would it look like if Christ lived in you and through you, if you were a true follower? See, being like Jesus is not a religious thing. It's not a weekend event. It's an all-week lifestyle. And here's what I found. 
the more God shapes our hearts to be like Jesus, the more we realize that being like Jesus is not a religious thing. It's not an event. It's not cosmetic. It, it requires a radical letting go. It requires picking up a cross and following Jesus. Now, in Mark chapter 8, Jesus' ministry is on fire. Crowds everywhere he goes, healings, miracles of provision, demonic deliverance. I'm telling you to be on Team Jesus in those days was a thrilling thing. Tides turning, watch out, Rome. Glory days are returning. The king is here. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus feeds 4,000 plus people with seven loaves of bread and a few fish, then heals another blind guy at Bethsaida. As he and the disciples are processing what's taking place, Jesus asks them, who do you think I am? You're the Messiah, the Christ, Peter says. Then Jesus begins to tell them that he's, he's going to suffer a lot, be rejected by many, and then killed, only to rise again after three days. And Peter takes him aside and and rebukes him, disagrees with Jesus. He disagreed with the suffering, rejection, and death. Now, this isn't hard to understand, is it? I mean, everything in Jesus' ministry up to this point has been power and glory, healings and wonder, awe and authority, kingdom stuff. See, I think Peter believes that suffering and rejection lead to failure and finality. He believes that power and glory are a completely different journey from suffering and rejection. But Jesus doesn't see it that way. In fact, he connects powerful acts of healing with the self-denying powerlessness of humility and surrender. He, he seems to say that you actually cannot get to one without walking through the other. So he crawl, calls the crowd over and, and he says these words, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. Now, don't miss this. Ultimately, Jesus wants us to find life. He, he wants us to live good news lives. He, he does not agree with our, disagree, excuse me, does not disagree with our desire to be happy. He simply disagrees with our path. Here's the path, he says. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Not three things, but two things in the service of one thing. If you want life, you need to follow me. If you want to follow me, do two things. Deny yourself, take up your cross, surrender your way, surrender your agenda, surrender your identity, surrender your life, take up your cross. Can I tell you one thing that they would have known about taking up your cross in those days? A person who takes up their cross doesn't come back, <laughs> at least not the same. It's a whole different identity. I mean, what does this look like? It's not just a call to self-restraint and self-discipline. Set a run in one mile, discipline yourself to go two. Instead of eating all the ice cream, save some for Lynn. You love that Netflix series. Instead of binging on two seasons this weekend, just do one. Or let's make it more spiritual. Instead of praying for 15 minutes, discipline yourself to pray for 25. Instead of reading one chapter of the Bible a day, read a book a day. Add in some fasting, solitude, giving. Whatever your desires are, restrain them. Discipline yourself to become a better version of yourself. Listen, Jesus is not talking about working harder to just become a better version of me. It's not self-discipline, it's self-denial. And you combine that with a call to take up your cross, which is self-death. So that in fact, rather than trying harder, it's more like quit hanging on and let go. Quit hanging on to what, you say? Well, quit hanging on to yourself. 
So I think this is an identity issue. We, we have a huge problem in our culture, in our country today, with identity issues. We all want to choose our identity. And this is an identity issue more than it is a discipline issue. What is your identity? What, what are those, those pieces of yourself that you feel so define you that you dare not let them go? See, I don't know. I just wonder if part of Satan's plan is to get our identity so deeply entrenched with multiple causes, camps, people, and selves that we have no room for our Christ identity. We have political identities and vocational identities and racial identities and cultural identities. We're Penn State proud and we take on labels about gender and sexual attraction and power and privilege and place and religion Some of us have taken on identities of shame because of the words or the actions of others. Some of us, and we don't even know who we are because we feel so unseen. What's at the heart of my identity? That piece of who I am that shapes every other piece. What would it look like to quit hanging on to that piece and just let go? You know, there's some parts of yourself that are so deeply held, woven into what you think is important that letting go of them seems like Well, it actually seems like death. Listen, this isn't easy. (laughs) This is why white people get bent out of shape when we talk about privilege. This is why gay people feel hated when we talk about sexual sin. This is why Republicans and Democrats can barely hold a civil conversation. (laughs) See, Jesus died so that his identity, his life, his heart, his mind— would shape every part of our living and every part of our identity. So listen to me. Quit hanging on and let go. Embrace your cross. Treasure Christ in you as the identity of you. Glory in your identity as a Christ one. I tell you, I believe that this is the key to revival and conversely the barrier to a move of God like we have never seen before. Let me read just that last part of Mark 8 again from the message translated by Eugene Peterson. Jesus warned them to keep it quiet, not to breathe a word of it to anyone. He then began explaining things to them. It is necessary that the Son of Man proceed to an ordeal of suffering, be tried and found guilty by the elders, high priests, and religion scholars, be killed, and after three days rise up alive. He said this simply and clearly so that they couldn't miss it. But Peter grabbed him in protest, turning and seeing his disciples wavering, wondering what to believe. Jesus confronted Peter. Peter, get out of my way. Satan, get lost. You have no idea how God works. Calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Don't run from suffering. Embrace it. Follow me and I'll show you how. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way. My way to saving yourself, your true self. What good would it do to get everything you want and lose you, the real you? What could you ever trade your soul for? If any of you are embarrassed over me and the way I'm leading you when you get around your fickle and unfocused friends, know that you'll be you'll be an even greater embarrassment to the Son of Man when he arrives in all the splendor of God his Father with an army of the holy angels. Would you pray with me? Father God, I, I pray again for each and every person listening to the sound of my voice. Now, I pray that you would lead us on this journey, this seemingly dangerous journey to an amazing destination that involves taking up our cross. 
never coming back the same. Dying to self, taking up our cross, living for you, finding our identity in you. God, I pray for young people and old people and everybody in between who have lost a sense of who they are. Who, who, Christians, Christ followers who have lost a sense of who they are in you. God, I pray for a restoration of our identity as, as family of God, as brothers and sisters of Christ, as Christ ones, as, as ones who have died to ourselves and now Christ lives in us. God, I pray for, for each of us that, that people will see more of you, Jesus, in us every day. God, pour out your spirit upon us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.